As many of you know, we have been walking through this sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. And a couple weeks ago, Daniel launched us off as we looked at love. Last week, Beck did did just a great job unpacking for us and sharing with us a great challenge of of what true joy is and how, how that's cultivated in our life. And today, we get to look at this aspect of peace, of peace. And so we are going to dive in and look at, at, at the fruit of the Spirit of peace today. And uh, there's, there's a lot that could be said, and, uh, and frankly, this was, it was a challenging sermon to pull together and know, know how, to, how to attack this and how to, how to deal with this. Um, there's, there's so many different things that we could address, but uh, by God's grace, I hope this could be a time in which we can reflect on how we can bring peace into a world uh, that, that is facing many different struggles and difficulties right now. So let me pray for us as we get started here and ask that God would guide us into His Word today. Our Father, we look to You today. You are our Father who has loved us. When we were undeserving, You have adopted us as Your children to enter into Your family. We do thank You for all of the, the fathers here today, for our, for our earthly fathers for the men who have led and, and cared for us and raised us. And as all of us recognize our, our failures and weaknesses as men, we look to our perfect Father, the one who is holy, who is just, who is loving, who is always patient with us. And so we cry out to you today and ask that you would do a work in our lives. We do pray for those here, even in the room, who may be uh, facing a day of of sorrow and sadness, maybe because of the loss of a father, we lift them up to you today and ask that today could be a time of of celebration and reflection on their legacy, but that you would also bring comfort and healing to those hearts. We thank you for what you can do through your word, and as we look into it now, I pray that, that as we look at the fruit of the Spirit today and in the weeks to come, that the Spirit would be at work in our lives to cultivate these virtues, these characteristics in us, that we would not just strive to, to, to make these things happen, but that as we depend on the Spirit of God, as we live in light of the gospel that has transformed us, that these things would take root in our lives, in our church, in our community, in our city, and in the world. So, Father, we look to you today and ask that you would guide us and that your Spirit would move within us, point us to Jesus today. And it's in the glorious name of our Savior that I pray. Amen. The date was 1914, and World War I was, had, had been underway for a number of months at this point. And the fighting had been getting worse. It was growing, more widespread and intense. Many didn't think World War I would last very long and that it would be done in just a few months. But of course, that wasn't the case. And the, uh, the outbreak of war brought new technology and weapons that just devastated different parts of of Europe and the world at the time. But there's this amazing story that's been uh, handed down to us that came out of the border near France and Belgium around Christmas time, at Christmas time in 1914, where the British and the German forces were engaged in deep combat. That which characterized uh, warfare at that time was, was trench warfare, So both these armies, the German and the British, were were in their trenches in this area. There had been days of fighting, shooting back and forth. 
The men were hunkered down in their trenches, fearful to even lift a finger out of the trench that, that it would get shot off if there was any movement. But something happened amazingly on Christmas Eve of that year. As the, as, as the, the, the firing had stopped for a period, and into the evening as there was a, a moment of calm and quiet, the, the British soldiers begin to hear something very surprising. They begin to hear quieted singing. They began to hear singing coming from the German lines, and it sounded like Christmas carols. And as they listened, they began to hear more and more Germans breaking out in song, and, and the British, in turn, began to sing Christmas carols as well, songs like Silent Night. And uh, from, from different sources, it appears that there was some kind of gift that was sent over to the, to the British side, and they basically said, hey, we won't shoot if you won't shoot right now. And the story goes on from different, different sources that are left, left to us, that on Christmas morning, some of the Germans begin to lift their head out of the trenches, begin to wave their arms, and the British thought this was some ploy to get them to come out so they could, they could then slaughter them. But as, as they watched, they, they saw some Germans emerge with no weapons. And so the British soldiers kind of began to pick, poke their head out, began to look out, and slowly, it seems as though both men from both sides began to slowly emerge from their trenches, and they met what is, in, what is known as no man's land in the middle of this battlefield. And it appears that, that what happened on that day, which has now been, become known as the Christmas Truce of 1914, was on, in the midst of this ter- terrible and atrocious war, there was a moment of peace that was found between these two sides. And they spent Christmas Day... It seems as though sharing drinks, cigarettes, hanging out a little bit. There's even legend of a soccer match that broke out between the two sides at one point. This wasn't everywhere along the front lines, but it, but it was in this section. There are multiple sources that confirm that this happened on Christmas Day of 1914. And when the, uh, the, the higher-ups, the, the other generals and all heard of this, they were, they were upset, they were, they were frustrated, so they, they, they made sure that nothing like this was going to happen again. They couldn't be fraternizing with the enemy. But there was this beautiful moment in which these two sides, who were dead set on killing each other, found a moment of peace. And in that moment, they saw each other as men, just like themselves, and something united them in that minute. Even though in the days to come, the war would resume, the, sh- the fighting would continue. But what this heartwarming anecdote from World War I tells us, and it reveals to us our longing for peace, that why can't we have that? And as we look out into a world, we see a society that seems to be experiencing anything but peace right now, right? From a virus that has taken many lives has shut down many economies, destroyed small businesses, has polarized people on how we should respond, all the way to the the match that has been struck and then tossed onto the massive pile of kindling that has been building around issues of race and injustice in our nation, that that thing has now been set ablaze over the last few weeks. And then we have an upcoming election as well which has two sides beginning to foam at the mouth over this issue and that issue 
slinging stuff from each side over whose candidate is more morally reprehensible. Then we got our few libertarian friends on the side saying, hey, I have a few ideas maybe we should try. What a year 2020 has been, right? If you had a thousand words to describe this year, peace would never make the list. But what if we, as followers of Jesus, could send out a message saying we won't shoot We can lay down our weapons, and we can point you to a better way. See, Paul tells us that an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit that should grow out of our lives as followers of Christ is peace. And so that's what we're going to look at today. how How do we find peace in a world that is just longing for it, but seems like it's impossible to find? So I do have a classic three-point sermon for us today. My three points are this. So I want to look first, number one, at one anchoring truth. Number two, I want to look at two crucial issues. And then the third and final point will be three necessary responses. For those of you who are good at math, you may be sitting there thinking, sure sounds like you just embedded six points into three. And uh, guilty as charged, but uh, trust me, we can, we can move through these pretty quickly and really hit on, on, on the kind of the, the thrust of this. So let's look at one anchoring truth, and that is this. This one anchoring truth is that God is the source of peace and provides the only true answer to our struggles. God is the only source of peace and provides the only true answer to our struggles. When you look up peace in a dictionary, you'll get a a definition something like the freedom from disturbance, quiet or tranquility, a state in which there is no war or fighting. It's freedom from the disquieting oppression, from oppressive thoughts or emotions. And I think we would all recognize that. I think we know how to define peace. But biblically speaking, peace is not merely the absence of, of, of negative hostility but it also is also the presence of right relationships. And I love the definition set forth by, by Kevin DeYoung when he writes this. He says, biblically speaking, peace or shalom points to a situation in which God's authority and rule are absolute, where His creations, including human beings, exist in right relationships with Him and with each other where there is no separation between God and man because of sin. But God is the only one who ultimately can bring us peace. That's why Paul, in many of his letters, as he, as he opens up his letter, what is the thing that he writes to people with? He says, oftentimes, grace and peace to you from God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Peace to you from God. Paul knew that it was, it was only from God that peace could flow and actually be found. He wrote to the Thessalonians, may the Lord of peace grant you peace in every circumstance. We can only know peace as we receive it from God. And that has to anchor us in all our pursuit of peace in this life. But then there are two crucial issues that I think I I, I want to address, I want to point us to. Two crucial issues. 
The first is this, is if peace can only be found in God, it's, it's this issue that alienation from God is our root problem. And we see this in the beginning of the story of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, it tells us of man's rebellion against God's creation and rule. Rather than fulfilling his role to guard and to care for the garden and to, to submit under God's righteous and peaceful reign, Adam allows the enemy to deceive him into joining him in rebellion against the true king. And it's at this point in the story that the peace that was established by God in creation melts away and is supplanted by enmity and conflict. No longer do the man and the the woman walk in fellowship with God, but they actually hide in shame and retreat to themselves. Man seeks to place blame on others, and conflict breaks out between the man and the woman and within human relationships. The creation itself is cursed, and the work which originally was, was meant to be a way in which God, man would reflect God and, his, and his, his creativity becomes a burden of labor and effort, as even the creation itself is cursed. And what God intended for Adam to do God now has to do himself, and so he sets an angel to guard the garden, cast the man away from his presence, and the peace melts away into conflict and strife because of the sin and the rebellion of man. And so it is that problem which is the, the, the root and the source and the, and the, the driving factor of, of the, the entire biblical narrative, that alienation from God is our root problem, which means the answer is not merely found in other things that we may be told we can find it in, whether that be political means, a humanistic philosophy, just the evolution of humanity to become a better version of ourselves. We will never find peace on our own apart from God because our alienation from God is the root problem that flows out into the hostility and the struggle that we find between each other. So that's our first crucial issue is our alienation. But our second crucial issue is this. It's that actual but partial peace is possible. Actual but partial peace is possible. And here's what I mean. We know that biblically speaking, we will only fully see and experience the restoration of shalom, the restoration of peace at the end of the age upon the return of Christ. But that doesn't mean that we as Christians just hunker down and watch the world burn until Christ comes back. As we have received peace from God, as He's brought us into His kingdom, we should live lives as those who are ambassadors sent out into this world to display the kingdom of God in our lives and in our communities. We should then care about issues of reconciliation, of justice, of the protection of the marginalized, and ultimately of peace in the world. And that's not because we believe that through our efforts we will bring about utopia, but because God is on a mission of redemption and that He has invited us into to participate in as well. And as we follow Jesus, we should long to see the peace that we have experienced with God break out into the world. We should desire to see reconciliation take root, even though we know that it is limited. 
I think one way to say it is that we cannot have an over-realized eschatology. What do I mean by that? It's a fancy way of saying we cannot expect what is promised in the end to be here fully now. We cannot have an over-realized eschatology, but we must not have an under-realized hope. If we believe in the gospel, that the gospel can change lives, that the church can influence and impact the world, then we have a hope that we can taste the peace of God in our lives and in our world. So actual but partial peace is possible. Which leads us now to three necessary actions that I want to point us to. I want us to look at three necessary actions, and I, I, I just searched the Scriptures this week, and in so many places God talks about peace, but the passage that kept coming back to me is Ephesians chapter 2, so I just want to land on Ephesians chapter 2 for a little bit. Ephesians 2 that gives us just this beautiful declaration of the reconciling work of Jesus. So we, so we see three necessary actions from this passage. We see first, and I'm going to be in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. The first action is that we have to remember. We have to remember our own story. And this is what Paul writes to this church. He says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, this, this language that describes the, the physical marker that separated and distinguished the Jewish nation from all other people groups, those who, who belonged to God and those who did not. It says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. See, each of the words that Paul uses here could be applied to us at one point. You see, we have not fixed ourselves. We have not found peace by ourselves. Ours was a condition of desperation. This passage parallels what was previously stated at the beginning of chapter 2, in which it is declared that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That, that we were just those that, that, that walked according to, to this age. We were children of wrath, just like everybody else, like the rest of mankind. And so Paul is, is, is challenging us, calling us to remember who we were. And we, haven't, we haven't done any of this on our own. We are recipients of grace. And when we remember that apart from the work of God in our lives, we'd be left to ourselves, to our own destruction, that should at least lead us to be a people that has a posture of humility towards others. That we don't stand just merely in condemnation of others, but that we recognize how much we have been given. So he calls us to remember first. The second action he calls us to is to, to recognize our present realities. Recognize what has been accomplished and he declares, he says, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments that were expressed in ordinances 
so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far, and he preached peace to those who were near. And through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then we are no longer strangers, no longer aliens, but we're fellow citizens, members of the household of God. What a glorious passage. It tells us that in Christ, all the things that separate one man from another can be removed. And here he is specifically addressing the barriers between Jew and Gentile, which at that time was a massive chasm. The Jews wanted nothing to do with those who were not of their nation. What Paul is saying here, though, applies across all relational barriers. And Paul makes this even clearer when he says in a passage like Galatians, When he says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Over and over, the New Testament tells us that the blood of Jesus removes religious, it removes cultural, social, and racial boundaries. Now, this doesn't mean that those realities don't exist. You don't stop being a man and a woman. We don't stop being one ethnicity or another. We don't stop being black or white or whatever other skin color we may have. Those things exist, but in Christ, they are no longer lines of separation. And we have a unity in Christ through Jesus that transcends common social divisions. And the church should be the leading voice in announcing this kind of unity Because the death of Jesus not only restores us individually to a right relationship with God, but it also unites us to all other believers into this household, into this family, which is why we use that language of family so much around here, that we we are a family brought together as brothers and sisters, as children of God. And this unity that we share through the gospel, breaks down everything that formerly divided and separated people, and it announces peace to all. And this is the foundation for all efforts of peace that we can see in our world. It has to be rooted and born out of the gospel in, in, in any effort to bring peace. So we have to remember who we are. We have to recognize what God has accomplished in Jesus to make peace possible And then lastly, we have to respond as peacemakers. We have to respond as peacemakers. What does Matthew 5 say in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You want to act like God's children to reflect Him in how you live? We're called to, to be peacemakers in the world. So how do we do that? How does this response flow out in our lives? We respond first by that that we live with internal peace. We have to live with internal peace. We have to recognize what, what Romans 5 says when it says that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have to receive the peace that we have been given. That we have been given the opportunity to have freedom from anxiety. To cast our cares on, on God. To not be anxious. And knowing that the peace of God that is, that, is, that is inexplainable will keep our hearts and our minds. So oftentimes we're, we're waiting for peace just to be manifested. We're, we're striving. We come to Jesus just so like our life will, will settle down and things will get better. But, but, but scripturally, biblically, we, we have to receive and walk in the peace that has already been given to us. And that peace can be experienced even amidst the challenges and difficulty that we experience in life. Beck made this point last week so, so, so beautifully. Even in suffering, joy and peace can characterize the life of the Christian because it's rooted in something other than just our circumstances. So stop just waiting for it to appear, but, but live in the freedom and the peace that God has brought into your life. And if you are struggling to, to find that peace, the invitation here is to turn to Jesus, to recognize that He has made a way for you to be reconciled with your Creator. In 2 Corinthians, it says that, that, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. And then there's this call to be reconciled with God. To find internal peace, first and foremost, is found and rooted in our own response to the gospel of Jesus, to know that we can be reconciled to our Creator, to be brought into a right relationship with Him, and have a peace that is inexplainable, that so many are searching for, that so many are longing for, and we have the opportunity to point people ultimately to that source of lasting internal peace. But we don't just live with internal peace on our own and walk around and just ignore everything else, but no, we are called to also move in and toward relational peace with others. We will, again, never be able to bring about the final and absolute shalom promised by God. But insofar as we can, we should seek to evidence, to reflect, to advance, and declare the peace that is available and that we experience. As God's image bearers, we must carry this message of reconciliation both with God and with men. And we carry this truth both by our proclamation of the gospel and by the evidence of it in our own lives. This means that, that we who are at peace with God should be the first ones to seek peace with others. And this starts with how we view all of humanity. Do we see everyone as people made in the image of God who need to be restored in their relationship with Him? Do we see a political opponents, those who criticize us, as those who bear the image of God, who need to be restored to their Creator? This truth means that Christians should be the most welcoming of people. We should constantly be seeking to, to cast off our prejudices, to actually identify and change our own negative presuppositions about race, culture, ethnicity, intellectual superiority, and even social class. We have to seek to declare and display in our words and our actions and our relationships that we do value all men and women equally as image bearers of God. We have to seek to set aside our sinful attitudes towards people that we just don't understand, we simply don't get along with, 
or who are just plain different than us. It was John Piper who wrote these words when he said, If Christ died, mark this, died to make the church a diverse, reconciled body of Jew and Gentile, red, yellow, black, and white, and every shade and shape in between, then to glory in the cross is to glory in the display of the fruit of that cross. And in light of the the events that are currently causing so much tension in our country right now, regardless of your take on, on the specific circumstances around anything, are we a people who are willing to at least stop and listen to show compassion towards those who are crying out about the injustices that exist because of racial differences? Do we desire peace to actually be found in our country through the destruction of racial discrimination and the healing of the gospel? And so let me just just take a moment just to to speak into this right now. As this is just just boiling over, it's it's everywhere in everybody's news feed and in the news and everywhere. And I think we as Christians have to be so careful to avoid three things specifically. I think we need to be careful to avoid generalizations. We need to avoid reductionistic approaches to any of these conversations. We have to avoid all-inclusive acceptance or denials on any specific issue. There are very few either-or issues when it comes to discussions of, of race and injustice in all of its forms. And we cannot, as Christians, adopt just simply the political polarization on these issues that we're seeing right now. Right? It just seems like more and more being being told, you got to pick a side. You got to pick a side. You got to jump in your trench, and then you get you get your the bag of whatever that whole thing comes with. You know, we're being told things like this: that either, on one hand, you support the police and you justify the abuse of power. Or you, are, or you actually, on the other side, call to abolish the police. Either you say that black lives matter and march with and you stand in solidarity with the movement as a whole, or you say all lives matter and deny the issues that are being raised out there. Either you say that racism is the direct cause of all forms of social inequality, or you embrace and protect your white privilege. That's the polarization narrative that's taking place right now. And as peacemakers, as, as those who follow Jesus, we as Christians in our effort to make peace in this world must be careful, thoughtful, nuanced, and ultimately biblical. And as we engage on these things, we can believe in individual responsibility before God. And we can also recognize the challenges and even the oppression that specific ethnic groups have faced historically and currently. We can listen to and sympathize with the black community in their cries of injustice, and we can also try to wrestle through the nuance of how maybe the effects of historical racism still has influence on specific social structures or systems. We can believe that there are many faithful police serving to protect and care for our communities, and we can believe that we probably need to evaluate our justice system and our policing policies. We can look honestly at the moral deficiencies of our, of our national history, specifically on issues of slavery and racism. 
We can grieve the atrocities of the past, and we can believe that the only one who can truly atone for sins is Jesus. We can lament the loss of life in our world and not simply full sail accept a so-called progressive liberal agenda. We can declare that black life matters and it matters to God and not just support and endorse a specific political movement as a whole, even the Black Lives Matter organization. We can recognize the church's failures to be faithful peacemakers in our society, and we can believe that despite her flaws, the faithful proclamation of the gospel and its implications by the church is still God's primary means of bringing wholeness and reconciliation in the world. But we must act as agents of reconciliation. God has called us into that. As He was reconciling the world to, to Himself, He has also entrusted to us this ministry of reconciliation. So we have to be careful not just to add fuel to the fire, but to actually be those who have a category where we can stop, where we can listen to another person, where, where we, we may say, I fundamentally disagree with you on this or that, but I'm willing to, to stop and engage with you from a place of humility and a place of grace because my God has showed me such patience when I was His enemy. The fruit of peace in our lives is not only tied to this one issue, even though right now this issue is, is kind of at the forefront of things. But in order to understand this principle of reconciliation, it has to reach into every sphere of our lives and every relationship that we have. It begins with us just asking, do we actually welcome people who are different than you? Is there someone in your life group who you look at and you say, I just don't get them? Every time I have a conversation with them, it's just awkward. Don't know, don't know how to engage with them. Don't know how to, how to you know, just even have a normal conversation with them. So do you seek to maybe avoid them? To casually, you know, always be in the other room? Or do you, in light of the reconciling nature of the gospel, seek to, to bridge that gap, to build a relationship with them, to, to, to understand their differences, who they are, and take, take joy in who God has made them to be? Are you willing to even enter into a life group community that might be a little different than you? Now, granted, we're not a very diverse group here, let's be honest, but we are diverse in a lot of different ways. Maybe you're willing to experience some generational diversity in your life, to sit down and listen to, to someone much older than you, to engage with, to hear their experiences, to, 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 to see that. Are you willing as a, as a young family to, to invite a, a single person over into your home and get to know them and their story and what, what their life is like? As a single person, are you willing to enter into a community that maybe is pretty busy and doesn't always have the freedom to, to just go out and to, to hang out or have fun, but maybe are you willing to come and just hang out with boring dads sometimes? Like, can we be a, a community that embraces this in, in, in the diversity that we do have here? 
And the, and the different things that divide us and separate us is, is our response, I need to find my people. I need to find people like me that, that enjoy what I enjoy, that, 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 that I can share life with in the way that I want to experience it. Or are willing to cross all those things that oftentimes separate us, to engage in the awkward conversation, the different viewpoints, to actually care for each other. Do we pursue relational peace in every sphere because of the peace that we have experienced, first and foremost, from God? Do we seek to extend that to others? Do you run from relational conflict, or do you actually seek restoration? When someone hurts you or offends you, do you just say, I'm done, I'm going to go find a different, different group of people that will actually listen to me and affirm me? Or do you seek to, through the difficult conversation with that person, Seek to grow in your own understanding and in your own character, your own understanding of what peace actually is. Do we judge each other based on our response to this whole COVID pandemic? To wear a mask or not wear a mask? Can we have a competition about who can love their neighbor more? Like, so many things that we just allow to come in and to to bring conflict and strife even in the church. Can we set those aside, care for each other, have a reasonable conversation? In your arguments with your spouse, with your roommate, with your friends, with your coworker, are you willing to lay down your weapons, your constant need to defend yourself and just be right? Are you willing to look at them from a place of love and forgiveness? Because God has showed you such undeserved love and forgiveness in Christ. When conflict arises, do we see the source of that conflict as something that is actually covered by the blood of Jesus, that we don't have to demand that that person atone for that sin? We can address it, we can speak into it, and we can seek restoration in our relationships because Christ offers that freedom and that opportunity to us. Are we willing to be wronged and to forgive because Christ was wronged in order to forgive us and to make peace with us while we were His enemies? During this season, can we be a church and a people who extend and display peace to others because we know and have experienced the reconciling work of Jesus in our own hearts and our own lives? We can only truly be reconciled to each other as we are first and foremost reconciled to God. But if we have a right relationship with God, it cannot stop there. We have to seek peace in every sphere of relationship. And it starts as we remember who we were, recognize what Christ has accomplished for us, and then we have to respond to that. As we live with internal peace, move towards a relational peace with others, And our last response, which I will leave us with, is this, is that we hope in eternal peace. Our hope is ultimately in the eternal peace that God has promised that He will bring about into our lives and into this world. And I'll leave us with just two passages of Scripture that I want to read to us. The first is Isaiah 9. 
a passage that we oftentimes just kind of look at around Christmas season, but a passage that has glorious truths that always stand as hope for us. When describing the rule and reign of this coming one, says, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. Just ponder that for a minute. No end to peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He will do this. He will bring this about. And then the Apostle Paul writes to us in Romans 8. He says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons. Do you feel the groaning of the world right now? Do you feel the groaning in your own heart, in your own life, that we can do better, that we, that we need something better than this? We eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Can we be a people who wait in patience, but in active living hope that doesn't just stay out there, but that reaches back into here and now, that causes us to recognize what God has done in Christ, to reconcile us to Himself and to each other, and to live that out in our relationships, in our responses, our engagement on social media, in every sphere of relationship? Can we be those who live as those who have peace with God and long to see it break forth into our world. This is only a work of the Spirit of God in our lives. We cannot do this on our own. This goes back to the heart of this entire sermon series. This is the fruit that is born out of us, not merely by our efforts, by a work of God's Spirit in us. Let us press in to our Savior and beg with Him to create and cultivate these characteristics in our lives, to be a people, a community, and a city of peace. So let's pray to the God who has accomplished this peace for us. Father, we can do nothing on our own. And it's only by Your grace and Your mercy that we have been brought into a right relationship with you. The only way that we can have peace in our relationships, in our world, is as we recognize what you have done to unite us to yourself. Let that truth break forth, not just in our own individual lives, but in, in how, we, how we engage with those around us. I pray that you would heal the wounds that are so evident and open in our, in our country right now. Let us be honest in our own hearts and our own lives. And let us continue to carry a message of hope to this world, not rooted in humanity just bettering themselves, but only in humanity recognizing our need to be reconciled to our Creator. 
May this church and this people be a faithful presence in this fallen and broken world and do that only as the work of your Spirit cultivates and grows these things in our lives. It is in the beautiful name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.